0: Throughout the pandemic, mental health has been a big issue with a lot of anxiety and depression going around. But there is a silver lining. The world's psychological immune system turned out to be more resilient than we thought. Many people were able to weather the psychological challenges of the pandemic and focus on the positive, despite some real challenges. For more on how the pandemic didn't affect mental health the way you think it might have, we'll speak to Elizabeth Dunn psychology professor at the University of British Columbia.
1: I am part of a Lancet task force on mental health, and our job was to comb through the literature and find the best studies out there to look at the mental health consequences of the pandemic. And, you know, we really went into this data expecting to see just despair, right? Because this has just been such a terrible and difficult tragedy. And there's such a strong media narrative around this notion of a pandemic mental health crisis. So we were actually pretty startled when we discovered in the best data sets that although people did exhibit a spike in anxiety and depression early on in the pandemic around March and April, very quickly people started to show real evidence of resilience returning pretty close to kind of pre-pandemic levels of mental health.
0: To state this clearly, you know, this is not to diminish those people that did go through something. There were a lot of people that legitimately went through the anxiety, depression. There were deaths by suicide, all that. But overall, people did tend to come back pretty quickly. And you mentioned in the article too, you know, by spring and summertime, people were really kind of getting over the pandemic. They wanted to get back to that normalcy. And that's why people started going out during the summer and all that, you know, so that's really where it started to turn a little bit.
1: That's exactly right. So what we saw is that it was around summer of 2020 that people seemed to be doing a lot better. You know, and interestingly, I think if we look back to sort of mid to late 2020, people were still experiencing pretty substantial disruptions to their lives, you know, being unable to see far flung friends and family, you know, having to work from home. Lots of stuff was still, you know, a big challenge. And so I think it's still very striking to note that people maintained their feelings of life satisfaction over this period. Anxiety and depression fell back down. So what I really take away from this is just people have an incredible capacity for resilience. And that in no way diminishes the really important, very Valid struggles that so many people experience, but I think we also have to recognize this incredible human capacity to deal with kind of whatever comes our way.
0: Part of this too, if I may, just comment on it. You know, because we did a lot of stories on the podcast about mental health throughout this whole thing, and and part of why it sounded so bad, I think, was that a lot of services were scaled back for people to throw more power behind treating people with COVID. So in hospitals and 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 clinical centers, you know, some of the mental health services got scaled back. So that was part of the issue. People couldn't get the normal help they might have needed. But you're right. You are talking about this psychological immune system that we as human beings possess. And, and this is kind of what helps us get over these things a lot quicker.
1: Yeah, so we use the term psychological immune system to mean this whole sort of web of cognitive abilities that we all possess that enables us to kind of make the best of even a really terrible situation, right? So if you go through a bad breakup, for example, or lose your job, you may be really devastated at first, but pretty quickly you'll figure out that you know, hey, that there were things I didn't like about that romantic partner, or you know, I'm appreciating the opportunity to get back on the dating market, or whatever. So we we know from this past research that people do have this incredible capacity. To cope with negative life events. And what really stood out to me is that that psychological immune system seemed to kick into high gear in the face of the pandemic.
0: Right. And where, you know, obviously people have always said, Hey, get ready for the next one. I mean, this kind of teaches us an important lesson that we can get over these things. We can survive these things and come out better on the, on the other side, hopefully in a lot of cases.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. And that's why I think it was so important to us to share this message because, you know, I think it's easy to step away from the pandemic with this impression that, everybody fell apart. Everyone's mental health was just destroyed by this really negative uh, experience of living through the pandemic. And that would be the wrong lesson to take away from this. I mean, I really think what we're seeing in the data is that human beings can cope with massive changes to daily life. And that's so important, I think, as we face off not only to a future pandemic, but also to challenges like climate change. We may have to undergo real changes to our daily life as we cope with climate change. And I think we need to recognize, hey, human beings can get through this. You know, we can make big changes to our daily life and still maintain our mental health.
0: In all the studies that you combed over, because it was over a thousand, I think you mentioned in the article, um, anything that stood out the most uh, to you throughout all of that?
1: I think the single study that stood out to me the most was the Gallup World Poll data, which uh, the Gallup World Poll surveys thousands and thousands of people from over 100 countries around the world and measures their life satisfaction. And they've been doing this for many years. And what we see is that the life satisfaction that people reported you know, around the world in the Gallup World Poll in 2020 was identical to the second decimal point to averages from previous years. So This is just astounding to me that, like, all the incredible changes we all went through and life satisfaction on average around the world remained completely stable with regard to previous years. Now, it did bounce around. There were points in the year where people were having a tough time. Again, that March and April was no joke. People had a tough time in March and April of 2020, but they bounced back. And so, you know, to me, this is just a really powerful tribute to the human spirit,
0: Yeah, I mean, everything changed, but, you know, we look to those silver linings, you know, being stuck at home with your family wasn't so bad at sometimes. when you had your family game nights and things like that. So every silver lining that we could find kind of probably helped us through all of that. So just a, a good way to look at this. And, you know, obviously there are people that have needed help and do need help still. But overall, we've shown that we can get through all of this. Elizabeth Dunn, psychology professor at the University of British Columbia and chief science officer of Happy Money Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We continue to hear a lot of news about the Delta variant of COVID-19, and it's causing worry among public health officials, especially in places like Wyoming, where only 32% of people are fully vaccinated, and they're expecting big events to take place very soon, like a 10-day rodeo set to start later this month. Hospitals are also seeing a rise in younger patients infected with this variant. For more on how Delta is gaining ground among the unvaccinated, we'll speak to Julie Wernow, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal.
2: Laramie County in Wyoming is sort of a perfect illustration of what we're seeing in pockets around the country. You've got an area where, you know, they've really struggled with their vaccination rate sort of the Wild West and people just aren't signing up anymore to get vaccinated. So they're at about a 32% vaccination rate, which really isn't high enough to kind of prevent the spread of things like the Delta variant in the community. And on top of that, You have the fact that they have completely gotten rid of any of the restrictions around mask wearing and, you know, anything that we saw earlier in the pandemic. And so people are sort of returning to normal life in this situation in which the Delta variant is showing up and you really only can see it visibly if you're at the hospital itself. On top of that, Fourth of July weekend and this huge rodeo that's coming to town kind of has public health officials and doctors. They are concerned about what's to come.
0: Are we still seeing younger patients coming in more often with this? Is this where the bulk of infections is coming from?
2: In some ways, right, the reason we're not seeing as many older patients is because uh, folks on the older end of the spectrum actually do have a much higher vaccination rate in general, right? And so if you are seeing people come through the doors, you're more likely to see these younger patients There are pediatric patients that are showing up in addition to, you know, I I spoke to a woman who's 28 years old, and she had a very kind of classic case of what we're seeing with the Delta variant, which is that once she was exposed, it came on very quickly and then sort of spread within her household. So that is very different than in the past, That there's a much wider range of folks at the hospital in terms of age.
0: You spoke to a a number of people at, you know, these hospitals and different care centers, and They said that they're fighting, obviously, this on two fronts, still people getting sick, but then a lot of misinformation. You know, a lot of people are sick of hearing about COVID. They don't want to hear about it anymore. They don't want to be told to be vaccinated. But the misinformation a lot of times is what keeping is keeping them from going out and getting those shots
2: you know, yes, we've had time for, you know, the virus and to kind of spread and mutate and change and grow. But at the same time, misinformation has also kind of been changing and growing and spreading. And so earlier on you know people who said you know they didn't maybe they showed up and they said that they felt like maybe you know there were tracking devices that were being inserted into them from the vaccine now you're hearing things like we don't even want to get tested for covid because we're concerned that the disease is actually being spread through testing so there's there's new kind of narratives that keep popping up that the doctors and healthcare workers say that they are, are sort of combating as they try to take care of this population
0: to be clear, we're not seeing numbers as I mentioned earlier the way we did at the height of the pandemic. But our hospital systems out there being overtaxed still. I know they're like uh, bracing for surges and all, but uh, are they being overtaxed right now? So far, you know what's
2: interesting when I'm when I'm hearing, by and large, is people saying that they've, in one respect, actually prepared better now for. A situation in which they could become taxed. At the same time, these really are happening, like popping up in very particular sort of pockets. And so, you know, if one hospital system becomes overwhelmed, they are more likely to possibly be able to rely on another hospital system. So you're not seeing the kind of really overtaxed hospital systems quite yet in a widespread manner. Of course, you know, the reason that health officials are concerned is that if anyone remembers back to when this disease first showed up in. In the United States, it didn't take very long for something that looked sort of like a very small pocket or blip to immediately kind of take over the whole whole United States. Right. And so they're always looking for these signs that something that's doubling every day or, you know, that kind of thing. It doesn't take that long for that to actually become really visible to people in the community. And so right now we're waiting to see if the vaccination rates we have been able to get to and the and the social distancing and mask wearing that is going on is enough to kind of prevent the kind of thing that we saw earlier on in the
0: pandemic. We're talking about Wyoming kind of as a as an example of a state with uh, low vaccination rates and just getting back to normal and kind of the concern that the Delta variant poses in places like that. Cheyenne Frontier Days is a huge rodeo that's coming to town pretty soon, as we uh, said at the beginning. Uh, it starts on July 23rd. Garth Brooks is going to be playing there. It's going to be a huge 10-day event. So this worries these public health officials there probably won't be a lot of mask wearing, but this is uh, these big things is what's concerning.
2: That's right. I mean, they say that the San Frontier Days has sort of done a lot to try to position themselves in a way that people understand that they what they really do want is for people to show up and be vaccinated and to wear masks if they're not vaccinated. But at a certain point, the public health officials in the area say, you know, at this point last year at Frontier Days, we canceled it because no one had a choice to get vaccinated. But this year, people do have a choice and we can't continue to stop the entire economy to protect people who aren't really interested in taking the vaccine or social distancing or wearing masks.
0: Well, we'll keep an eye on what happens there and around the country as the Delta variant uh, is now the dominant strain in the country. Julie, we're now health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank
0: you for having me. Early this week, we heard the same story again. Another week, another ransomware attack. The Russian ransomware gang R-Evil has struck again, this time taking out thousands of businesses in what was called a supply chain attack. This is a step above what ransomware attacks usually look like that only target one entity. The main target this time was IT services company Kaseya, which is how the hackers were able to infiltrate so many other computer systems. The ransom they demanded this time, $70 million. For more on this, we'll speak to Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired.
3: First of all, it's not just a few thousand computers, it's potentially a few thousand organizations with all of their computers. You know, so that, that number is kind of exponential from there. And I think the really significant thing in this situation, you know, you're talking about this group R Evil that has in the past hit, for example, like you were saying, JBS, you know, the global meat supplier. But that's an example of a really big deal, very impactful, disruptive ransomware attack, but one on a single entity, right? It's it's targeted toward a single organization. In this situation, this attack involved targeting the software of a specific organization, but it's an organization that their software is used by multiple layers of organizations downstream from them. So in fact, when you target their software, you hit lots of other targets and it's this sort of chain reaction. And that's a very significant step in ransomware targeting, not completely unprecedented, but certainly a major and noteworthy addition.
0: Right. Yeah. That They call it a supply chain attack. So They hit the first uh, organization with the ransomware. And then, uh, as you mentioned, everything kind of trickles down from there. So what this uh, main company was, it's an IT services company called Kaseya. Tell us what they do and how the attack unfolded after they were able to infiltrate them. So
3: Kaseya makes software. That's their main role. And then there are these other organizations called Managed Service Providers, who actually use that software for their clients. So it's a few different tiers of organizations that are involved, but basically those managed service providers are using Kaseya's software to provide IT services, infrastructure, remote management to all sorts of other customers. Could be anyone, often small and medium-sized businesses, but any organization that doesn't feel like they have the expertise or the bandwidth or the you know knowledge to run those things themselves, in a lot of ways, it can be a good idea from a security perspective to outsource them. But in this situation, the Ariaval attackers were exploiting a flaw in this type of remote management software made by Kaseya called VSA. And they were exploiting that to seed the ransomware out. And so I I think it's still being investigated whether that exploitation occurred sort of in the the hive mind uh, of Kaseya, like up at the top, or whether it was happening in VSA software running at each of the managed service providers. But either way, the trickle-down effect is the same, that you end up hitting a lot of customers who are just not expecting it, had no idea that this could happen, just kind of out of the blue, this supply chain attack, like right. you said.
0: Yeah, Kaseya, for their part, said that fewer than 1,500 businesses were in total were likely hit. But, you know, we don't know the true extent. It's, we're still kind of seeing how how it's all unfolding. There were some schools that closed in New Zealand. I think the people that were affected the most was the supermarket chain In Sweden, they were the ones that had to close a bunch of stores down for all of that. And the timing of the attack was interesting, too, because Kaseya, for their part, knew they had already identified this underlying vulnerability. They were working on patches to fix all that. But the uh, R-Evil gang hit before they were able to implement that.
3: The timing is... Interesting and unfortunate, you know, that Kaseya was already working on the patch and working with researchers who had disclosed the vulnerability to them. And then as they're, you know, scrambling to do that process, there's actually a real world exploitation of the vulnerability.
0: The thing with this R-Evil group that's also interesting and kind of what we started learning from the JBS attack is that R-Evil is kind of just like this big business that, you know, their business model is that they sell out this ransomware software to other affiliates, other people, and those people go and carry out the attack. So there's really no centralized group, let's say.
3: Yes, it's true. And I think that is a big challenge as the global community attempts to deal with ransomware, both in general and, you know, specifically when we're talking about our evil, is that a lot of these syndicates now operate in this way where, you know, you can't just say whoever developed the ransomware is the one choosing the targets, is the one carrying out the attacks. There's actually all of these affiliates and like revenue sharing people and organizations are cut in in different ways. And it makes it a lot harder to figure out, well, who exactly chose JBS as a target versus who chose Kaseya? Or or is it the same entity? Is it completely disparate? So yeah, it definitely makes it more complicated and is an important aspect to highlight.
0: Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Great to be with you.
0: Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.